<laughs> All right, Revelation 3 tonight. We're going to talk about, I mentioned this on Sunday, but we're going to talk about a church that most of you, if you were honest, probably didn't even know was in the Bible. Um, you've heard about the church at Thyatira and Laodicea and Philadelphia and all of these, but the church at Sardis? Well, Sardis was founded about eight centuries before Christ, 800 B.C. By the way, they're all saying now 800 C.E. or B.C.E. Do you know what B.C.E. stands for? They've taken Christ completely out of it. It used to be 800 B.C., which was 800 before Christ, right? And then 2019 A.D., which stands for Anno Domini, which is Latin for in the year of our Lord. Everything was based on when Christ came. But you know what B.C.E. is now? You're seeing in all the books before common era, right? They're taking Christ completely out of it. It's not B.C. anymore. It's before common era, so you don't have to say Christ. But we still use B.C. because that's what it is, 800 years before Christ. But that's when Sardis was found. Uh, it was part of the Lydian Empire. I know that means a lot to you, but it was located about 60 miles east of the city of Smyrna. Uh, we talked about Smyrna. Um, but it was, it was part of a very important road network. So it was kind of on one of these trade routes that was used a lot. Um, they were conquered or seized by all the usual suspects, you know, Greece, Rome, Byzantium, all of them took it at one point or another. And uh, on top of that, they, they fell prey to a lot of earthquakes and everything else too. So uh, by AD 1200, they had pretty much vanished off of the map. Um, there is still somewhat, there's a little village named Sart, S-A-R-T, that's still there today next to the city of where Sardis was, but really it's only there as a tourist trap to give people an opportunity to see the ruins of Sardis. So uh, there's nothing left of that city anymore, but turning our attention specifically to that church, and we see that right there at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3, um, Sardis was a stronger church than a lot of the other churches that we looked at. And um, its, its strength is impressive. The weaknesses of that church are pretty minor. Um, some, some might disagree with that, but at least if you look at that in relation to how gentle the Lord was in his admonition of that church, you would say that the things that he was talking to them about was not a very major thing that he was talking about. One of the things that sticks out to me about the strength of this church is that there was a remnant that was not willing to, to compromise. Let's read this passage and you'll see what I'm talking about. Revelation 3, verse number 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Perfect does not mean that you're without sin. It means that you're complete. It means that you're mature as a Christian, right? God said the same thing about Job. God said that Job was a perfect man. Well, he's not perfect. It doesn't mean that he never sinned or never made a mistake. It just meant that he was complete. He was, he was what God wanted him to be. And that's what he's talking about this church. He's looking at them. He's saying, I notice that your works are not perfect before me. Your works aren't complete before me. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So those are kind of the bad things about it. We're going to talk about those next week. But then he says this, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. But you notice what he says in verse number four? He's talking about some of these things that he didn't like about the rest of the church, but he says, but, but there's a few of you, there's a few of you who have not let go of the things that you should not let go of. There was a remnant. The church as a whole might not heed God's call, but there will always be a remnant. And if you look all the way throughout history, you've seen that. You know, during the Dark Ages, 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., the Dark Ages, it was just basically when Catholicism had a grip on every part of the known world at that time. And people didn't know how to read they were, they were, there was a ruling class who was, who was like the, the kings and all of that stuff and the landowners and the priests, and then you had a peasant class. You really didn't have a lot of middle class. Most of the peasants did not know how to read, and so the only people who could read the Bible was these priests who told everybody what the Bible said, and the people believed it. So they paid money to the Catholic Church for years and years and years. They did penance. They, they you know, lit candles for the dead. They did all of these kind of things that counted for nothing, but it's because they were in darkness. That's why it's called the Dark Ages, 500 to 1500 A.D. And for all practical purposes, we see no churches that are anything other than a Catholic Church during that time. But, but there was a remnant. And even though they were underground, they, were, they, call it an, they call it an underground church. didn't necessarily mean that they met underground, although in some cases they actually did. They met in the catacombs and things like that so they wouldn't get uh, killed because that's exactly what would happen if it was found out that they were, they were practicing anything other than Catholicism. But there was a remnant. You had the Waldensians. You had the Anabaptists. You had some of these other groups that they were not known because had they been known, they would have been, they would have been wiped off the face of the earth. That remnant was, was groups of people that held true to the word of God. And so as the, uh, the Renaissance happened, the Renaissance was like a rebirth of learning. People started learning how to read again. And then the, the printing press was invented, and it made it so that people could all have books available to them, and they learned how to read. And then the Reformation came about in 1517, and you know, Martin Luther and all these guys who broke away from the Catholic Church and, and started, started uh, making people realize that, like, like Luther, the just shall live by faith. It wasn't by doing all these works that the Catholic Church told you you had to do. It was by living by faith. And all of that came about. And the, you know, uh, but, but the whole point I say that is that there was a remnant, and then that remnant grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and now we've grown to where we are today with a lot of these different religions who do preach the truth of the Word of God and who are not bound by Catholicism and false religions and everything else. Um, but even today, when there's compromise all around us, there's still a remnant that is holding true to what the Word of God says. And that's why it's important. I believe we're part of that remnant. We're not going to bow to society because society says this is right or this is wrong. We're going to follow the Word of God. And that's our responsibility to make sure that we're not compromising the Word of God for the sake of relevance or compromising the Word of God for the sake of, you know, convenience. Uh, we have to do it because, you know, and look, during the Middle Ages, it wasn't convenient for them to say that they were a Christian. You go out and say, I'm a Christian, guess what? You don't have a head. <laughs> You're a headless Christian, you know. Uh, and it wasn't convenient at that time either. It's not convenient today to stand up for the truth and to stand up for what's right. 
Well, we have to. We have to. We have to be that remnant so, so that when Jesus Christ comes back, there's some faithful to the word of God and to, and to God himself. It's incumbent upon us that we stick with that. So there was one main strength of the church at Sardis, and I think that's, that's the strength that all the rest of the church stood on, basically all the rest of the strengths, and you can't say that this church only had one strength. It had a lot. Um, but rather than cover all of the things that we could say about this church, specifically, God gives us one thing, and I think that's they were strong on personal righteousness. They were strong on holiness. So let's talk about the remnant and their stand for holiness tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Pray that you'd help us as we look at this tonight, that you give us a greater desire to be holy, that you give us a greater desire to be righteous, so that we, like this church at Sardis, like those who were part of that remnant there in Sardis, would be counted worthy to be one of yours. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to turn to a few verses tonight. Turn to Isaiah 64. The first thing that we can say about this church and about the remnant and about their holiness is that they were a virtuous remnant. They were a virtuous remnant. And really, that means holy. God many times likens sin to dirty garments and salvation to a washed garment, a white garment, um, that beautiful replacement. And he says that, verse number four, you don't, you don't have to turn back to Revelation 3, but he says in verse number four, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Basically what he's saying is, I mean, he's just using this idea, but they haven't defiled their garments. They don't have the sin-stained sin garments. They have a white garment. And, and, and that begins in the tabernacle. I mean, they were, you know, we see the courtyard was enclosed in fine twined linen. Uh, but it's specifically, it's mentioned all throughout the Word of God. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Look at Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. See, even the best that we can do on our own, compared to God and His righteousness, is, our righteousness is like filthy rags. You know, who would go put on filthy rags to go out in public? You know, nobody does that. But that's when we are walking in our own righteousness, that's what it's, that's what it's like, right? We have the, those who are saved have the righteousness of Christ covering them, and so we're not walking around like we're in filthy rags. But that's what he talks about. Turn back a few pages to Isaiah 61 and verse number 10. I'm just, I'm just trying to show you the comparisons here that God likens sin to a dirty garment and salvation to a white garment. Isaiah 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. I'll turn over to Revelation 7. I won't have you turn to Zechariah because it'll take you a little time to get there, but I want to read you a couple verses out of Zechariah in verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse number 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. See what he's saying? He's using this as, a, as an example. Take those dirty garments off and give him a new garment. And he did that and he said, now what I'm showing you is those dirty garments are your sins. Get rid of them. Put on this white garment. 
Revelation 7 and verse 14. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 19 and verse number 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now John wrote the book of Revelation, and we can see from the last statement that he said there in John, I mean, Revelation 19 and verse 8, uh, that, that in his understanding uh, of the illustration, these white garments represented our righteousness. And that's what he's talking about. Go, go back then to Revelation chapter 3, and we'll look at it kind of in relation to this church at Sardis. Now, there's two kinds of righteousness. The first kind of righteousness is positional righteousness. That's our standing uh, as entirely holy before God based on, on Christ's finished works. That doesn't change. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you stand before God, you are going to be looked at and viewed as righteous. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. Once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's nothing or no one that can take that away. That's our positional righteousness. Our position before God is when he looks at us, he doesn't see a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us. That's what he sees. That's our position before him. But there's a second type of righteousness, and that is our personal righteousness. That's our actual state right now, our, how close we are to the Lord from day to day. And that can change. Sadly, it shouldn't, but it does, because sometimes we move away from God, sometimes we're closer to God. But speaking in the, in the personal, not the positional sense, our garments prior to salvation were filthy. And afterward, they're varying shades of white and dark. And I say that because, you know, sometimes we allow the world to influence us. Sometimes we allow the sins that, like he says in Hebrews, so easily beset us to stay in our lives and to cause us to be dirty as, as saints. And so our position before God is that he always sees us as the, he sees the righteousness of Christ when he sees us. But in our personal righteousness, they can vary in shades of white and dark. And the more we allow that sin to fester and the more sin we have in our life, the darker and darker and darker our raiments get. They need to be washed white again in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's he talking about? He's talking to Christians in 1 John. That's a great verse to tell somebody who's not saved, hey, you confess your sins, Christ will forgive those sins. But that book was written to Christians. And so that means that we can get to the point where we have dirty rags that we're walking around in, filthy as a Christian, and we need to confess those sins, not to a man, but to God, and to ask his forgiveness so that he'll come in and cleanse us from those sins. And he will. That's the promise that we have in 1 John 1.9. But the church at Sardis, I believe, excelled in this area of personal righteousness. Some of their people, and if you look in verse number four, had not defiled themselves or made their personal robes of righteousness filthy. In other words, they lived an exceptionally holy life after salvation. He says that. Thou hast a few names, verse number four of Revelation 3. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Needless to say, we don't 
gain entrance into eternity by living holy. Uh, but, but, we certainly do get complimented by God in that way. Let me explain that. Whether you live as a completely righteous and holy Christian right now or not has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to get to heaven. Uh, you can get saved and you can really get saved, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and then you can never step foot in church again. You can lie every day, you can steal every day, you could go kill 10 people. And you cannot lose your standing before God when it comes to whether or not he's going to allow you into heaven. Now, I would question whether or not somebody really got saved if they did that after they got saved. But nothing that you can do can cause you to lose your salvation. But what you do after you get saved can cause you to lose your fellowship and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And our job as Christians is to live lives that are as holy and as righteous as they can possibly be after we get saved. So let me give you that statement again. We don't obtain entrance into heaven or into eternity by holy living, but we certainly do get complimented by God in that way. And that's exactly what we see in verse number 5. We're going to get to that in a second, but I want you to look at verse number 18 first. This is the message to Laodicea, because this, this stands in direct contrast with the church that we're going to look at in Laodicea in a couple weeks. He says in verse number 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. You don't get positional righteousness, justification, salvation by buying it, but you do get personal righteousness that way. And I'm not saying, well, the more money you give to the church, the more righteousness you can have. I don't mean it that way, but what I, what I mean by that is it costs an awful lot to be a righteous, holy Christian because there's a lot of things that you have to give up in order to be a righteous, holy Christian. And that doesn't mean that you can't be rich and be righteous. You can have all the money in the world and be a righteous, holy Christian. I'm not saying that you have to go give everything you own to the poor to be a righteous, holy Christian. But I am saying that there's some things that you did before you got saved that you can't do. Or maybe I shouldn't say can't. You could if you wanted to, but that you shouldn't do after you get saved. There's a lot of things that ought to change. There's a lot of things that ought to get cleaned up in your life. And it costs a lot because there is a sacrifice to it, right? There's a sacrifice to saying, no, I'm not going to go do that thing. It's fun. I love it, but I'm not going to do it because that's not holy. It's not righteous. It costs a lot. It costs a lot until you get used to it. And honestly, it doesn't cost anything anymore. It's just part of life. You just do what God wants you to do. And sometimes we fail. Sometimes we, we, we let him down. Sometimes we don't always do the things that we should do but it's the way it is. And you know what? I'm building up rewards in heaven that are going uh, to last a whole lot longer than anything that's ever going to last on this earth. Amen. Look, you've never seen a hearse with a trailer behind it, have you? Because you can't take anything with you when you go. But you know what? You can pass it on ahead. Amen. And you can lay up, like the Bible says, you can lay up treasures in heaven. And when you say no to a temptation, you're laying up treasures in heaven. It might cost you something on this earth because it's going to be, it would be fun and you're giving it up. But you're laying up treasures in heaven. Amen. Laying up treasures in heaven. Telling somebody about Jesus Christ. You're laying up treasures in heaven. It's going to cost you something, right? Your reputation will change. Oh, there goes that holy roller, you know. I mean, maybe that's what they're going to say about you. I don't know. But it costs you something, right? You, you go tell somebody about Jesus Christ who knows what your lifestyle was before that. 
right? Oh, now look at him. He got religion and whatever else, you know. Cost you something, but you're laying up treasures in heaven. And that's where it matters. Holiness, sanctification in this life will always cost you something. An old French count was reduced, I guess you could say, by, the, by the, uh, just the, the carelessness of his ancestors who spent all the money that they have as, as a family. Uh, and so he, was end up, he ended up living in a common lodging house in Paris. And it was, it was a place where a lot of these uh, criminals hung out, you know, murderers and thieves and robbers and all of that kind of stuff. And many times they tried to get this guy to join them in their, uh, their lawlessness. And every time he would always say, excuse me, gentlemen, privilege has responsibilities. You see, I'm a French count. And if I were to join you in your operations, why my family name would be besmirched. I should bring disgrace upon the name I've been given. No, excuse me, I must go. There were times at, 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 that the church at Sardis adopted that exact same attitude. Uh, they had not defiled their garment. When they were tempted to do wrong, they would say, excuse me, but I'm a member of the family of God. And if I were to go and do those things, then I would bring shame on the name that I've been given. Excuse me, I have to go. And that's exactly the way that it ought to be. How much temptation we could surmount if we adopted the attitude of that old French count or this church at Sardis. How does defilement come? Well, turn over to Matthew chapter 15. We don't have a, a lot left, but I do want to talk about this for a minute. One of the answers involves touching something external that's dirty. You know, if I'm wearing a clean coat and I brush up against a car that's been covered in salt, you know, from the roads or whatever else, I'm going to get my coat dirty, right? How many times has that happened? You, 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 you just washed it, you know, you're trying to squeeze in between two cars at the, in the parking lot and you rub up against the back of it and the whole coat gets dirty, right? Uh, so that, you know, obviously defilement comes that way. We can see that illustrated in the life of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel uh, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat nor of the wine which he drank, right? That was an external type thing. He, re he requested that. He was granted permission to avoid those things so that he could remain pure and clean on the outside. And we see that as personal separation from the world. That's absolutely necessary in the life of a Christian that wants to live a sanctified life. Um, you know, you get to the point where you, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't go to the movies, you don't do those kind of things because those are things that are going to, as a Christian, ruin your testimony, right? They're things that the Bible tells us that we shouldn't be doing, and so when you do those things, you ruin your testimony as a Christian. But I'll tell you this, there's a lot of people that don't do those things who are completely filthy on the inside. So just doing something on the outside does not make you a good Christian. Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees did? I mean, God got on the Pharisees all the time because they did everything right on the outside. They looked great on the outside. But on the inside, what does he say? They were like whited sepulchers. Back in that day, back in that day, um, graves were external. Uh, there was basically a cave with a stone rolled in front of it, and they would put, they didn't bury the bodies in the ground. They set them inside of these caves. And so the way that they would uh, make them look good on the outside was they would paint them completely white. But obviously, you know it's on the inside of a grave, a nasty, rotting body, right? And that's what he said. These Pharisees were, you look so good on the outside, but inside you're filled with rot and dead men's bones. And that's exactly the way that a lot of Christians live their lives now. 
Well, I don't drink, and I don't smoke, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this. But inside, they're full of just all kinds of stuff that maybe other people don't know about, but God does, you know? Anger and, and resentment and bitterness and lust and, I mean, name it. And they're filled with it on the inside. And by the way, that's, those are the people that give Christianity a bad name because of the hypocrisy. How many times have you heard somebody, oh, those Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And there are people that are like that, you know? I'm not going to do those things that you guys do. I'm not like you. But then they see the anger and they see the, you know, the, the, the gossip and they see all of this stuff and, and they've realized you're nothing but a hypocrite. You're saying that you're not going to do this, you're this, you're this, you're this. But I see how you really are, right? So there's the external defilement, but then there's also the defilement that arises from the uh, sinful condition of our own heart. And Jesus put such a strong emphasis on that in his ministry. Matthew 15 and verse number 10. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Verse 11. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. You know what Jesus was saying? He was going against the Pharisees because they, how can you eat without washing your hands? I can't believe you would do that. Oh, what a dirty, dirty thing to do. And yeah, it is, all right? You ought to wash your hands before you eat right? You ought to do those kind of things because, yes, that can defile you. But Jesus was saying, that is the least of my worries. The outside, yes, you ought to try to make it right. And Jesus was not saying, don't wash your hands, you know. He was saying, sure, wash your hands. But so much more important than what you look like on the outside is what you look like on the inside. Because out of the heart is where the envies come from, where the murders come from, where the thefts come from. You commit those things in your heart before you go do them with your hands. And that's what he's saying. Yes, the outside matters. You ought to look like a Christian on the outside. You ought to act like a Christian on the outside. But even so much more important than that is whether or not you're a Christian on the inside. And that's what God is talking about, about this church at, at, at Sardis. They did things right on the outside, but they were right on the inside. And that's what Jesus sees. That's what God sees. You know, Christianity without separation from the world will result, uh, no doubt, in, in close contact with filth and with our own defilement. But Christianity with separation from the world without a constant emphasis on and a watch over the conditions of our heart is going to result in the same thing. So yes, you, you rub shoulders with the world. You go do the things that the world does. Yeah, you're going to get dirty on the outside. You're going to ruin your testimony. You're going to ruin all of those things. But even more important to God is what your heart looks like because you can stay away from all of those things Yet, when you're alone, you can be doing things that are completely against what God wants you to do, and you can defile the inside. The only difference is that those who are dirty on the inside are going to appear to be cleaner on the outside, but they're just filled with that putrid filth on the inside. Jesus said that you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 23 and verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. 
And he was so strong against the Pharisees because that's exactly how they were. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that, oh, well, just go live your life how you want to. Go, go be in the world and go do everything the world does. He wasn't saying that. He said, you need to have the outside clean, but your inside better be right or it doesn't count for anything. So they were a virtuous remnant. Very quickly, turn back over to Revelation 3. They were a victorious remnant. I want to read you a little quote from John Phillips. He's a commentator. By the way, a commentator is what you can find in this e-sword and in a lot of other places. You know, it's, not, it's, it's really not worth buying books anymore, commentator-wise, because they're usually pretty expensive, and you can get them all in digital form, usually for free. Now, this one, John Phillips, you can't. They don't have it digitally, um, but he's a great, great... He was, he's dead now, um, but he said it this way. Oh, let me, let me, let's look at Revelation 3, verse 5 and 6. We'll read that, and then I want to read to you what he had to say about that. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess... Get this. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, here's what he said about that. Think of it. To be taken by the hand by the Lord Jesus, to be led up past the ranks of the angels, up alongside the golden, uh, up along the golden boulevard of glory, up past the cherubim and the seraphim, up, up to the throne of God himself, and to hear the Lord Jesus call you by your name and present you in person as his well-beloved. Then to hear the Father say, bring the best robe and put it on him. Think of it. A robe of white, bright as the day, pure as the light. When the Lord Jesus was transfigured on the mount, something happened not only to his countenance, something happened also to his clothes. His raiment became as white, a white as the light. What a reward for faithfulness to have a robe like that draped around the shoulders and to be invited to walk the shining ways of glory and light transfigured clothes. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But look at that, look at that verse 5. That's, the way that he described it is exactly what verse number 5 is saying. He that overcometh, in other words, those who live lives as holy, righteous Christians, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Exactly what he's saying in the verse before that too. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In other words, he's going to take us hand in hand with himself before God and before the angels and call out our names and say, this guy is worthy. This lady is worthy. Talk about the, the honor of having Jesus Christ himself confess your name before God the Father and before the angels. That's a tremendous, tremendous honor for faithfulness. Apparently, to, to God's everlasting glory, there were some in Sardis that were holy like that. They had a strong personal righteousness, and they were given this incredible compliment of being called worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of being called one of his own. I want you to turn to Colossians 1, and we'll be done. That ought to be the aim of every single Christian. We ought to be a Christian that is striving to be worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Boy, we could stay in that passage for quite some time. We won't. But look what he says. Walk worthy of the Lord. How? Please him. 
Be fruitful in every good work. Do everything you can to be as good as you can for the Lord's sake, not to get to heaven, but for his sake. And increasing in the knowledge of God. The more you read, the more you study the word of God, the more you're going to get the knowledge of God and the more you'll be able to live a life that's holy. Look, everything that we need to know how to do and what we should do is given to us in the instruction book, right? We don't add things to it. We don't take things away from it. The stuff that we do as Christians is not there because we've made these things up just because, well, we've got to have certain rules. No, everything, that's, everything that we need to do is given to us in the Word of God. So read it. Study it. The more you learn it, the more you're going to do what it says. And the more you do what it says, the more you are going to live a life that's holy. So that's what we ought to be doing. Just like this church at Sardis. We need to walk worthy of him. Visibly, externally, yes. Yeah, we ought to look like Christians. We ought to act like Christians. We ought to talk like Christians. We ought to walk like Christians. We ought to do the things that Christians do. But we shouldn't just be doing Christianity. We should be being Christianity. Christianity is not something you do. It's something that you are. And when you're a Christian because that's what you are, instead of what you just because you're that's something that you do, then you will be a Christian that's holy. You will be a Christian that's clean. And like he says about these Christians at Sardis, you'll be a Christian that's worthy. Boy, what a tremendous honor that would be to be walked hand in hand with Jesus Christ and have him confess your name before the Father and before the angels and to have him say, this is my son. He's worthy. What an honor. That's what they were given at Sardis because they remained faithful to holiness. They remained faithful to righteousness. What a tremendous honor and what's something that we ought to be striving for every single day. I want to look like a Christian. More than that, I want to be a Christian. God sees the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. I want to be a Christian that when God looks at me, he doesn't say, Looks like a Christian on the outside, but boy, if, I, if, if people could see his heart, I want to I be a Christian that God says, man, he looks like a Christian on the outside, and if people could just see his heart, right? That's what we ought to be trying to do. And if, we, if we're trying to do that, and we sincerely mean it, then God will help us to get to that point. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for the time we can spend together tonight. And God, I pray that you'd help us as Christians to be holy. I pray that you, certainly we want to look like Christians on the outside. We want to act like Christians on the outside and in our language and in our actions and in everything that we do. But even more importantly, God, I pray that you'd help each one of us to be the Christian inside that you want us to be. The outside will take care of itself if we are the Christians that you want us to be on the inside. And so I pray that you help each one of us as we strive to be exactly what you want us to be. We want to be a strong church that's pleasing to you for your glory. And it's going to happen when every single member, every single person, every single part of this church is living a holy, godly, separated life, inside and out. And I pray that you'd help us as we try to do that. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.